Father, I thank you for this opportunity that we have every single week to come together as a community and just engage in all that it is that you have for us to learn more about you. Lord, I pray that your spirit will fill this space. I pray that the gift will just find a way in to each and every one of us to give us the little nugget or the piece that you want us to take away this evening. Lord, I pray that you will be with our discussion groups, that they will be rich, they will be honoring to you and point us directly to you and the love that you have for each of us. Lord, be with us this evening, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So when I first looked at this section, I was like, what are you doing, Eric? Like, I don't get it. Um, But then it became very clear. And so I think there is um, a lot that we can cover this evening. I'm going to read through um, our entire section, um, and then uh, we'll kind of go back. Starting with chapter 13, verse 51, and we'll go to chapter 14, verse 21 in Matthew. If you're in a blue Bible, it starts on page 819. Chapter 13, verse 51. Have you understood all of these things? He said to him, they said to him, yes. And he said to them, therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out his treasure, what is new and what is old. And when Jesus was finished with these parables, he went away from there. And coming to his hometown, he taught them in, the synagogue, in their synagogue, so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is, it, is not this the carpenter's son? Is, it not, is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? And are not all his sisters here with us? Where then did this man get all of these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because because of their unbelief. At that time, Herod of of Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus, and he said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of, of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people, because they held him as a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod, so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry. But because of his oaths oaths and his guests, he commanded it 
to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in prison, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took the body and buried it, and they went and told Jesus. Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, when he, went ashore he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, they, do not, uh, they, do, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. They said to him, We have only five loaves here and two fish. And he said, Bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass and take the five loaves and the two fish. And he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves, gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces left over. And those who ate were, and those who ate were about 5,000 men beside, besides men or women and children. There's a lot going on. And we're switching directions a little bit here. So we've come to the end of, um, not the end, we've come to the end of a section of Jesus teaching the disciples through parables. And he's checking in, checking in that make, to make sure that they understand. And the teacher part of me finds this to be pretty significant. He's like, do you understand? Are you sure you got this? Because it's kind of important and it's kind of a big deal. Your role in the kingdom of God is a big one, and it is crucial that you get this. It's kind of like uh, being the parent of a newly permitted driver. We now have four, two licensed, two permitted. And so it's like, okay, dude, do you actually understand the significance of you needing to know what you are doing behind the wheel of a 4,000-pound vehicle on the road with other moving vehicles? Like, do you get how important it is for you to really know what you're doing? This is why I have never been the first driver in the car with one of our permitted drivers. I can't do it. Like, do they really understand? It kind of scares me. And so it's important that they understand, and Jesus is going to point out and tell them why. But remember, previously, they answered yes, they understand, but previously in verse 10, they had asked, the disciples had asked Jesus, why do you speak in parables? And he explained why, and then he would go on after sharing or teaching with the parables of the um, sower and the weeds, he would go back and explain them again. So he understood and he was willing to answer the questions 
and he was willing to go back to make sure that people understood what he was teaching. It was that important. He did this to help the disciples fully grasp what he was teaching them. It was paramount of the utmost importance that they understand how the kingdom of God works. Jesus was really intentional in his teaching. For him and for the disciples, it was okay for them to ask questions and ask questions for clarification so they knew and understood exactly what he was teaching. Jesus was really gentle with his response. He would re-explain things. He would reteach. He would not shame them for asking questions. He wouldn't say things like, why do you think I said that? Weren't you listening the first time? I already said that. We probably have had experiences with teachers <laughs> that have answered our questions like that, and then we shut down and we don't want to answer or we don't want to ask questions. But questions are the opportunity for clarifying and getting, creating deeper understanding. They're important. So here are some of my understanding and information-seeking questions. How often do we ask questions when we don't understand something? Why do we just keep quiet? Do we keep quiet because we don't want the people around us to know that we don't know? As a teacher, I would always tell my students, there's no, no question is a dumb question. Did you all hear that at some point in your life? No question is a dumb question. Somebody else probably has the same question, so ask it. Why is it so hard? I have a couple teenagers in my house that would rather get a D on a quiz than ask for help. Why is it so hard to ask questions and ask for clarification? There is a fear. There must be a fear. And it might stem from how we want to be perceived, maybe as knowing things, or how we don't want to be perceived, like we don't know things that we think people think we should, right? So that keeps us from asking questions. We talked about it a lot this morning in our discussion, and we went down the road with this a little bit, asking more questions. Maybe it's easier to ask questions if it's something that we have never heard before, like it's new to us, so maybe then it's okay to ask questions. But what if it's something that we think we already know and understand, but somebody shares a different view or a thought about it? Do we ask questions then? Do we seek to understand? Do we seek to understand how the other person with a differing view came to that understanding? This is what is going on in Jesus' ministry, right? He is te his teaching is taking everything that they knew to be true about the kingdom of God based on the law, law, and he is completely turning it upside down. 
he is telling, he is teaching them the opposite of many things of what they have already known. And we saw that in the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes. Everything was the opposite. It was even hard for the disciples. So the fact that the disciples were asking questions was really important because for even, even for them, this was different. Like, you want us to what? Oh, okay. So their understanding of what he was teaching was really important. And Jesus took every opportunity to teach and reteach. And I think that's what he does throughout this entire book. He takes the opportunity to teach and reteach the things that we, he wants us to know about the kingdom of God. What if the religious leaders, I was thinking about this today because my, the class that I'm in right now is early church history, <laughs> so the first 400 years of the church, so like way, way, way back. But I was thinking, what if the early church leaders in the first century, or even the first, second, third, or fourth century, would have gone, well, okay, wait, I gotta back up. They couldn't have gone to Jesus all the way through. But what if they had the opportunity to go straight to Jesus or go straight to one of the apostles who had information, was with him or one of the disciples, and said, help me understand this, and actually engaged in a conversation with open ears, open minds, and open hearts. What might have been different as the church grew and progressed? Our small group is reading a book right now called um, The Wisdom Pyramid. Um, it kind of talks about where we get our information from and the difference between wisdom and information, which is kind of a, an important thing to maybe think about these days since we're inundated with um, information. But one of the things that it talked about last week in our discussion was that it is really important. We need to be teachable. We even need to be open to being wrong in order to fully understand the kingdom of God. Being teachable. There are so many things that I thought I knew, but then when I go to school, it's like, oh, I got that wrong. I didn't realize that. So there's so much context, so much more to understanding what Jesus is teaching. It was important for the disciples to ask the questions because it helped them to understand what they were being taught. And they could answer Jesus when he said, do you understand this? And they said yes. Because they felt like they had seen it, they'd heard it, he retaught, he re-explained, and they got it. And so Jesus goes on to tell them why it's important that they need to understand this in verse, 30, in verse 52. In another parable, Jesus is comparing the disciples to scribes. He says, Therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of, the, of a house who brings out his treasure, what is new and what is old. So the, con the context of the scribes for the disciples um, is that Scribes were the professionally trained teachers of the law. 
in the Old Testament. So they knew, they understood what the law was, and they helped people to adhere to them and understand them. And the disciples, now being trained by Jesus, were like the scribes of the new kingdom of God. They're not scribes, they're like. So this is a simile, right? He's making that comparison. He does this a lot in his parables. So if you know this, if you have this treasure and this knowledge that I'm giving you, you now have the obligation, responsibility as a disciple to share it. Send it out, share it with people. And he points to both the old and the new treasure. And he says this again, and he said it, and he, Jesus has said this in other places. He's saying old and new treasure because he has not come to replace the law, but to fulfill the law. The old prepared the way for the new. And so both are important. He's not saying only share the new, because that's the only thing that's important. They're both important, and it's important that you know this. This is your responsibility now. As a disciple of mine, you have the treasure. Now you go out and you bring it out to others. And then the focus shifts. In 53, Matthew gives us a glimpse of this growth. I mean, like, it's a shift, right? We're teaching, we're teaching. This is what it looks like to be a disciple. This is what it means to be a disciple. This is how the kingdom of God operates. This is your role in it. And Matthew shifts. And he gives us this little glimpse of the opposition and the rejection of Jesus and the new kingdom of God that will ultimately lead to his death. So he's just giving us a little sprinkle of it. When Jesus returned home, so he goes back to his hometown, his teaching astonished everybody. They thought there was no way that this kind of wisdom and this kind of power could have possibly come from somebody in this village. He came from ordinary people in an ordinary village, and his family still lived there. His dad was a carpenter. There's no way in their minds that this could possibly, like, what? They are not disputing his wisdom or his power. They're not saying he doesn't have it or that it's not true. What they're disputing is the source of it. They are wondering where Jesus got this wisdom and the powers to do these great things. They're questioning his identity as the Messiah. He couldn't possibly have come from Nazareth. This response is what he told the disciples it would be. Even his people, his own people, rejected him. And Jesus makes this proverbial statement about it in verse 57. I feel like we've heard this before, or maybe you've heard somebody say it. Prophets are, prophets are not without honor, except in their hometown 
and their household. The people that probably knew Jesus the best because they watched him grow up, maybe he played in their, at their house with the kids, maybe they were besties. The people that knew him best could not see anything other than a village carpenter or a village carpenter's kid. That's what they saw in Jesus. It's kind of like our kids, my kids. I've used my kids a lot. I hope they're not watching. I'm sure they're not. <laughs> they're busy. So my kids see me as mom, right? They have seen me as mom since the day they were born, and we have been living together since the day they were born. I am mom. And they have a really hard time seeing me as a wife that might have a romantic relationship with her husband, right? And so if there is any display of affection in our house between Steve and I, like anything, sitting too close on the couch, like kissing, like I mean it, anything. They're like, gross, don't do that. You're, that makes us so uncomfortable. And I'm like, this is my husband. I love him. And you should be real glad about that. <laughs> they see me as a mom. They know I'm a wife, but to them, I am their mom. And so this is about perception, right? Jesus was perceived as a typical village kid. My kids perceive me and they see me as a mom. It's about perspective. Jesus was perceived incorrectly. He was understood incorrectly. And he was rejected. We also see that rejection and denial again with the death of John the Baptist. Moving on to a new chapter, chapter 14, verses 1 through 12, gives us a little, like, a jump back, a little flashback to what is going on with John. John the Baptist was a threat to Herod at that time and a threat to his leadership. That's why he was imprisoned. Last time we talked about uh, John the Baptist in Matthew, he was imprisoned, remember? And he sent his disciples to question the identity of Jesus, right? So he's in prison. And the timeline of this is not necessarily clear, but the people believed that John was a prophet. He was teaching and preparing the way for Jesus. That was what he was to do. And he was popular. He had followers. He had his own disciples working with him and helping him. But he spoke up against Herod's immoral and illegal failure because he had a relationship, or he was in a relationship, with his brother's sister, or brother's wife. <laughs> well, that would be bad, too. <laughs> the, the Old Testament law would have considered that relationship to be incestuous. And so, therefore, it would be against the law, Old Testament law, too. But even now, John is looking at this from a moral you know, new kingdom of God perspective, it's immoral, it's wrong. And so because of John's popularity, and he has this opinion about Herod, 
And Herod has done these things. He imprisons him because if he's in prison, he can't talk more and he can't have a negative impact on Herod's rule or leadership. What he had done was a political embarrassment and he was trying to manage the damage. Doesn't sound familiar at all, does it? Herod knew that he also could not kill John. Because of his popularity and people liking John, following John, believing John, he couldn't kill him either. Because if he killed him, the people would go crazy. And there would be even more damage to his leadership. And so that's why he just kept him in prison. But then he ended up, as we read, he ended up ordering, ordering him to be killed anyway because he had made an oath with a 12-ish-year-old girl who was Herodias's daughter at a very lavish birthday party he was throwing for himself. And as I was reading through this, I'm having flashbacks to King Ahasuerus in Esther, right? This lavish, over-the-top lifestyle, the money, the power, seemed very reminiscent, seems very reminiscent. So he made this oath with a 12-year-old, and now he's stuck. I mean, today, we would probably be like, really, a 12-year-old? You could probably explain your way out of that one, right? Probably. But there's a party here, and these people witness this oath that he has made. And then, in that context, in that culture, if you broke an oath, there was no greater shame. And so he couldn't break the oath. He was stuck. And it, see, and it said that he was sorry. He knew that this was wrong or dangerous, damaging. It also makes us wonder, based on the treatment, him being in prison and then him being sorry about having him killed, it makes us wonder if Herod had some type of um, inkling that maybe John's identity as the prophet paving the way for Jesus was true. So breaking that oath would have been humiliating. It would have been dishonoring to him, and he couldn't do it even an oath with a 12-ish-year-old girl. And again, this is about perception. We're seeing this theme of perception in here. Public perception was more important than the truth for Herod. Herod was concerned about his reputation and ultimately rejected the truth 
of John's identity. And therefore, he was beheaded, put on a platter, and brought to the girl. And the girl was probably encouraged with that desire, or that's what she wanted, by her mom, because her mom is in this relationship with Herod, and she doesn't want that to end, and she also sees John the Baptist as a threat, but isn't maybe as concerned as Herod with the you know, ramifications of having him killed. So John the Baptist, his identity was rejected. And now Matthew takes us back to a little bit happier place. So those two, those two stories, those two instances of rejection that he's sharing are getting the audience thinking or realizing that this is the beginning of more rejection that will ultimately lead to his crucifixion. But we go back to a miracle. Jesus feeds the 5,000. Chapter 14, verses 13 through 21. There are a lot of things that we can take away from this miracle, and it's a popular one. It's actually the only miracle that is stated or shared in all four of the Gospels. Fun fact. And there's a lot ha- that have, has been done with this. As I was reading and just like immersed in this, I'm like, I, we could do the whole time on this. But just to give some of the ideas because I want to focus on something that might not be as obvious. This miracle is often linked, so these are the common kinds of things that people see. This miracle is linked to Jesus or God's provision of manna when Israel was wandering in the wilderness. And the Jewish tradition believed that a Messiah would also provide food in the wilderness in an even greater scale. So that's the connection that a lot of people make to God providing the manna in the wilderness for Israel. Another point of significance is the breaking of the bread. So Jesus is the bread of life, and that this community meal and others like it, because there's, there's more than one or two of them, these are, foresh- these are like a foreshadowing of the Last Supper. People will see that as well. But another takeaway that I found interesting, or I find interesting, is that Jesus took another opportunity in this miracle to teach the disciples something important about the kingdom of God. He's not done teaching. He takes every opportunity he can to reinforce, reinforce, reinforce what he has taught the disciples so that they truly understand how the kingdom of God should function and what their role is in it. So this crowd, Jesus leaves. He hears of John's death and he leaves 
by himself in a boat across the lake, a desolate spot. And we have to, like, the guy wanted to be alone, right? I feel like there was a lot of clues there. By himself, across the lake, in a boat, desolate place. He might have wanted to be alone. But these people, crowds, followed him on foot. So he went across the lake in a boat. They went around the shore and met him where he was. So when he gets out of the boat, he sees these crowds. And instead of being like this curmudgeon teacher that's like, really, do I have to do this again? He sees them, he sees their need, and he engages with them, and he also heals their sick. And as the night grew closer, the disciples were concerned about the people being hungry or getting hungry because they had come by foot, and the end of the story tells us there was 5,000 and that that did, not that did not include the women and the children. So, I don't know. What if every man there was married? Well, then maybe there's 10,000. So all of these people have come to be with Jesus and there's little villages around. They do not have enough food because they were not anticipating crowds. And the villages around probably can't take in that volume and number of people and provide food for them. So the disciples are worried. It's getting dark. These people are going to get hungry. So you need to stop your engagement with them and send them away so they can eat. Like they told Jesus what to do. Stop talking to these people. It's getting dark. They're going to get hungry, and they need to go find food. So you need to stop now. Because this situation could get ugly. He told them what to do. They told them what to do. This is how we're going to take care of this situation. And in reading this, I thought to myself, how often do I, how often do we look at a situation or find ourselves in a situation and decide how we are going to handle it? How often do we only see one way, our way, to handle a situation? Have you ever told Jesus handle it, how to handle a situation? And that you actually expect him to handle it? Like, okay, God, this is a mess. I'm kind of tired of it. And I need you to change that person's attitude because clearly I can't. I've done it <laughs> more often than I care to admit. So we tell God, this is how this situation needs to be handled and I want you to handle it this way. And then when he doesn't handle it the way we want him to, then, we think, then he's not listening. And so I find it interesting that the disciples were going to take charge and this is how we're going to do it. But Jesus said to them, oh no, nope, that's not how we're going to do this. You give them something to eat. I kind of, I'm like, 
I would have liked to be been there. Like, oh no, you can give them something to eat. Leon Morris said this about this situation. Jesus simply turns their attention away from the hopelessness of the situation and their easy solution and invites them to think about how they could help the situation. And the disciples pushed back on him. He's like, you feed them. And the disciples are like, what? How on earth are we going to feed all of these people with five loaves of bread and two fish? This makes no sense at all. But Jesus wants them to see the abundance that can come from there, even though it's a meager contribution that they bring. He wants them to see the abundance of their contribution and its ability to help the situation and the power of God in the situation. It's easy to look at what is going on around us and think that we don't have the time, we don't have the expertise, we don't have the experience, we don't maybe have the resources to help, that the issue is too big for me to make a difference. But if we had, I think about this, this situation like just has been sitting with me. The situation of the disciples not being able to see how they could help in the situation, not solve it, but what they could offer and what God could use in the situation. And I think about this, so often I think, well, I can't, I don't have enough money to fix that or I don't have enough time to go and do that whatever it is but if we have one hour if we have one dollar the possibilities of what God can do with whatever we have to offer is unimaginable right no matter how insignificant we think our contribution is God can use them and he can use us and being responsible for community life and, you know, involvement and volunteering, I think about an hour. Like here, the impact and what God could do in the lives of children. If we had 20 people offer one hour twice a week, we could reinstate 1030 children's Sunday school. And how many people... How many children would be able to go and hear about the love of Jesus and the relationship that he wants to have? And so I just think about even the smallest contribution, even my dollar, like when they were raising money for um, the warming shelter, even my donation of $25 to one of the Quisberg kids who slept outside to raise money, made a difference because my $25 wasn't the only $25. He raised thousands of dollars, actually more than anybody else, including the adults. And so my little contribution, God can make a lot bigger and have wider impact than I ever could imagine.
it's important for us to remember and what Jesus needed the disciples to see is that God turned not enough, an insignificant contribution, into enough to feed the entire crowd. And not just to feed them so that their bellies stopped rambling, but in abundance, and there was leftover. Jesus took this opportunity and showed the disciples again, he's teaching again, how the kingdom of God works and what their role in it is going to be. So this morning we had this conversation. What has God asked us to bring? Like, what, if, what has God asked us to bring? If we don't have to worry about whether or not we bring enough, what does he want us to bring? He wants us to bring a willingness to engage, right? The disciples at first did not have a willingness to engage. Like, they could not see a, solu you know, a solution other than send them away. This is how we assess the situation. This is how we see the situation being taken care of. And Jesus said, no, you actually can help. Give them the little food that you have, or give me the little food that you have. He wants us to be willing also to engage and bring what we have, and he can take care of the rest. And we can imagine big. It's interesting to me the way this section laid out. So this section started out with, do you understand? Do you understand what the kingdom of God looks like, how it functions, and what your role is in it? Because it's really, really important. And then it ends with, okay, let me show you again. Jesus was such an intentional teacher and he was such a gentle teacher. And there's so much that we can take from these passages, even though they seem disconnected, right? Like a little paragraph at the end of 13, and then halfway through another chapter. Remember, those chapter breaks were added by humans that were trying to make sense of the writing. And so we see this progression. Do you understand the significance? It's kind of a big deal. You need to know what you're doing, why you're doing it. And then, oh, by the way, I will be rejected. You will be rejected too. And if you haven't got it yet, I'm gonna show you how you participate how you can be part of this, how you encourage other people to be part of the kingdom of God and what God can do in it, with us, through us, even with our most meager offering. Your discussion group questions, did they scare anybody? There's, a, there's more explanation in these um, but I am going to give you a, um, this is the teacher in me. I just want you to know 
that when you come back, there's a quiz. <laughs> Actually, it's a test. It's not a quiz. It's a test. <laughs> because what I've learned at my house is that quizzes aren't worth asking help on, and Ds are fine. <laughs> so when you come back, um, we'll come back together, and um, we'll have time to be able to answer questions. That was a clue. All right.